This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And we welcome barrister and human rights advocate Julian Burnside to Triple R this morning. He's released a new book, Watching Out Reflections on Justice and Injustice, in which he explains in vivid detail how the Australian legal system delivers justice, uh, while also reflecting on his own journey as a prominent legal advocate, particularly for those seeking asylum. And it's really great to have you in at Triple R. Welcome. Thank you very much. And uh, I mean, you write... Uh, at length, really, in this book, that we have a legal system, not a justice system. And I suppose that's a good place to start this morning. Um, you wish, as many of us do, that we did have a justice system. Sure. I mean, and it's it's interesting to reflect on what we mean by justice. The point about our legal system is it's designed to achieve justice in most cases. But the difficulty is some people are locked out of it. You know, people who are unpopular, people who are who can't afford law... Um, because the fact is that the legal aid system is underfunded, so legal aid is only available in serious criminal cases. Um, community legal centres aren't adequately funded. Um, if, if people get to have any chance of getting justice, short of appearing for themselves, which is challenging, um, they, they need some sort of help. And the problem with legal aid is that Legal aid is trimmed to fit the budget, whereas it should be uh, the budget should be set to match the need. And community legal s- centres have recently had a reprieve on their funding, and I think a I think reprieve, it's but their funding is not adequate, even no. still, even still. You know, I, I did some arithmetic on that, and um, community legal centres see hundreds of thousands of people each year, and generally speaking, if you look at the amount of government funding they get, the community legal centres cost. $172 per client. Now, try that with any lawyer. Well, I think, I mean, you you do right that we, you know, as citizens and uh, many of us don't understand the legal system. And I wonder if this is part of it, Julian, that because we don't understand how the law operates, uh, that when we find ourselves in it, that's when we start to see the issues. But prior to that, we don't actually really know how underfunded the system can be. Yeah, and I think that's a problem generally in our community. Um, we we don't notice that there's a difficulty until it hits us. You know, I mean, look at look at the treatment of unpopular groups. Look at the way we treat asylum seekers. Obviously, it's an interest of mine. Look at the way people who are homeless are treated. Um, that they, you, you, we tend to forget um, how that is. I, I have this thought experiment. Um, I would reckon that if you asked a, a number of Australians. About 95% would say they think that justice matters. They think that human rights matter. And then you think, well, hang on. We knew about the stolen generations for decades and there was no particular community response. We've known about the mistreatment of asylum seekers for years and years. There's been no particular community response. We knew that... David Hicks and Mamdu Habib, both Australian citizens, were locked up without charge, without trial in Guantanamo Bay by our ally. And it was five years before anyone in the community was really very concerned. Um, so then you stand back and you say, well, what is it? Maybe our belief in human rights is my human rights are important, but those people down the street who I 
suspect or don't trust or don't like their human rights don't matter in the same way for them justice is much less important than it is for me the snag with that line of thinking is that it assumes that human rights come from the fact that you're white or pleasant or christian or educated or some other advantage whereas in fact you have human rights because you're human how do we account for, for I guess, the, the broader community's willingness to go along with these, um, particularly, for example, asylum seeker policy, very punitive, very harmful policies that are, that are um, bring a lot of harm to people in offshore detention centres as well as detention centres here? You talk a lot about decency in your book and this idea of decency, and it seems to me that when you, uh, for example, deal with um, hate mail that you receive and, and individuals who get in touch with you, you're very willing to kind of engage with them and, and invite them to have a debate with you, and you you seem to have a great deal of optimism that people's minds can be changed and there is some level of, of decency there, there that can be achieved. Well, I mean, you know, I, it would be easy to give up. Um, there's one thing is if you keep on trying at something, you might succeed. If you give up, you definitely won't succeed. So, <clears throat> you know, just go for the margin. Mm. Um, I... Uh, I don't want to concentrate on refugees in particular. The the thing, the interesting thing about hate mail, you know, I got involved in the refugee issue through the Tampa case. That's the only case I've done that has attracted death threats, which I thought was amazing. I mean, on any view of things, those people rescued by the Tampa couldn't do anything to help themselves. Um, so why should you send death threats to someone who's acting free of charge to help some people who can't do anything else? Um, but then all the hate mail... Um, what I decided, that, ignorantly, I thought, oh, well, if the public knew the facts, they'd change their mind and the policies would change. Um, I thought it would take six months. I was wrong. 2001. Tampa. 2001, yes. You yeah. know, you, by the, and by the way, the Tampa decision, the uh, decision in the Tampa case was handed down at 2.15 in the afternoon, Eastern Standard Time, on the 11th of September, 2001. I was going to say, mm. you put those dates together because, I, I mean, like many people, I remember the Tampa and I remember September 11 attacks mm. in, in the US, of course, and I had never put them on the one yeah. date. Oh, it made a profound... Has, has that been significant? an enormous impact, an yeah. enormous impact, because... All of a sudden, you know, the, the attack on America happened eight hours or so after the decision in Tampa. And all of a sudden, in the West, you didn't have terrorists anymore, just Muslim terrorists. And in Australia, you didn't have boat people anymore, just Muslim boat people. And they were suspected of being terrorists, even though none of them are. And um, so we've had this really weird, lopsided thing about about refugees because... At some deep level, Australians seem to think that maybe they're terrorists and there's just no support for that at all. But um, uh, we need to understand that there are, you know, there are groups in the community who are having a hard time. And I was interested. I decided to reply to all the hate mail because I thought, oh, well, these are people who need their minds changed, so I'll change their minds. And Although they had write to me in incredibly abusive terms, I couldn't believe how abusive people were prepared to be to someone they've never met. And um, uh, and so I would sit up and write down saying, thank you very much for your email. I gather you don't agree with me, but did you realise? And give them a few facts. And virtually all of them replied. And all the replies were polite. 
And I thought, wow, from screaming and shouting to polite in one step is amazing. And I eventually came up with the view, which I still think is probably right, that there's a lot of people out there who feel disconnected from society. They feel as though society is not interested in them. So they've got a complaint. They complain. No one listens. They complain louder. People listen less. They end up ringing late night talk back radio. Maybe maybe some of them come in here. I don't know. <laughs> but they get filtered out so that they, they're screaming and shouting and no one is listening. And as soon as someone listens, they get polite. So I thought, for me, the hate mail didn't say much about the refugee issue. It said a great deal about people who feel alienated in our community and that's a very serious problem and, and you point out as well i guess the, the type of language uh, we use and, and governments have used particularly in relation to asylum seekers and the way that in some way i guess enables that type of behavior or enables those types of um, views to be emboldened and that's things like calling asylum seekers illegals which has mm. happened for years now at the federal level and in our public it, it started discussion. in 2001 by the way mm, well that's yeah. that's right and 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 also i'm um, changing the name of the Department of Immigration to Immigration and Border Protection, of course. So um, words really matter, don't they? And the words that we use to describe people affect the way that to which broader people in the community can relate to others. Uh, absolutely. It, um, it changes people's orientation profoundly. And, I mean, I, and, you know, it's not new. We have seen it before. I grew up in Melbourne in the 1950s when Greek and Italian migrants were fairly obvious uh, you know people had come out as refugees after the war people had come to australia for the snowy mountain scheme that sort of thing and and i remember people of my parents generation talking about these um greek and italian people you know they're too religious they they have too many children they don't learn the language they eat weird food weird food like coffee with froth on the top <laughs> <laughs> i mean i remember when cappuccino was a, a a new surprise in Melbourne. And they ate weird food like calamari, you know, which was almost unthinkably awful. Um, and and they were called wogs. And the word wog really had a sting to it. And the sting was taken out of it by the blokes who did wogs out of work. All of a sudden it becomes a term almost of affection, but it's an amusing term now, I think. Um, and what too many people in our society fail to understand is First, people who come here who are different may still have something very useful to offer. And second, you need to think what it is like to be put to the margins of the community, to be hated, despised, ridiculed, abused by a lot of people in the community. That's a very bad way to be. And if, if ever it's your turn, you'll know that you've left your run a bit late. Uh, Julian Burnside's with us and speaking about some of the themes in his book, Watching Out, Reflections on Justice and Injustice. And I suppose um, maybe I should have asked this right up front. Like what, what motivated you to write this book uh, in particular? It's, a, it's kind of a, a sequel follow-up, isn't it, to, to what you've written well, in the past-ish? I'm not, I mean, I know the name is sort of similar, but it's not really... I, I wouldn't regard it as a follow-up. Um it's, it's, I suppose, having been involved in the law now for 40-odd years, I'm thinking about how it all works. And, um, and the book is more or less um, my account of how it works or doesn't work. And I try to... I, it's interesting. I, I gave it to Kate, uh, my wife, and she's actually enjoying it. She said she's learning <laughs> stuff about the legal system that she did not know. 
and and since the legal system is our path to a justice system, um, you need to understand how the legal system works and what its shortcomings are. And I was, she, I, I think she's enjoyed the other books I've written, but this is the first time she's actually volunteered that she enjoyed it. Well, I, I, look, I enjoyed it as well and um, have, have learnt a lot. And I suppose uh, it's made me think a lot about the, the role of those within the law, like lawyers and, and barristers, advocates as well, um, within the legal system and this idea that, you know, with legal aid uh, and uh, those that have money have representation, those with no money, you know, could potentially access legal aid. Those in the middle often don't necessarily have it. And we have this sort of army of lawyers, many of which are putting in pro bono hours as well. And I suppose has that role of the of legal representation changed in your 40 years as a... Uh, in the law, you know. uh, to be honest, I don't think so. Um, I think the patterns are still very substantially the same. You know, law and therefore justice exists um, largely for the help of people who can afford the system. Now, I I could be wrong about that. I know legal aid and community legal centres have increased in their scope to some extent in the last forty years, but. Uh, well, actually, legal aid funding has retracted and legal aid coverage is less than it was 40 years ago. That's a pity. Um, but the other thing that worries me a little bit, um, I mean, I grew up in the era when we all would watch Perry Mason on television. Um, maybe a lot of your listeners haven't even heard of Perry Mason, but it was one of those law courtroom drama things. Um, and I think a lot of us wanted to be lawyers because we wanted to be like Perry Mason, you know, pursuing a just outcome, that's right. And then along comes LA Law and there's a generation of people who want to be lawyers because they wanted all the money. And then along came Boston Legal and another generation of <laughs> potential lawyers who reckon it'd be good for the sex. <laughs> well, I'm with the Perry Mason group. Um, and I guess... You know, back when I went to university, I think most law students would say that they were interested in justice. Um, and now maybe the number has fallen a bit. Um, although it's interesting, I get a lot of help from interns helping me with all of the requests for help and so on and the refugee stuff. And a lot of the interns come from big, important solicitor firms at the big end of town. And they are pursuing justice because their day job, they're getting well paid, but they're doing tedious, repetitive stuff, going through documents, sorting stuff out. And they really like the idea of being able to do something that brings them close to justice. I think it's a very important instinct. It's interesting um, kind of reflecting on, on your career and how you originally got into law. You talk about that at the beginning of the book and, and reveal that you kind of voted Liberal for, for much of your adult life until the, the 1990s and um, and also how you've become known largely, I suppose, out of your refugee and asylum seeker advocacy work as a, a rusted-on lefty youth <laughs> as a kind of a pejorative, <laughs> pejorative term. But um, but you suggest that, that your views haven't actually really changed all that much that you used to be kind of in the centre. I think you describe yourself as a polite um, middle-class man who now is seen as someone who's on the far left. Mm, which is bizarre. Uh, um, one explanation is that the political spectrum has moved so far to the right that if you start in the centre and stand still, you look like you're on the left. I mean, I remember when the Labour Party was a party of the left. Um, that's a while ago. But... <laughs> Um, to be candid, I have never been interested in politics. I'm still not interested in politics. I think 
I'm involved in an issue which is political because it got tangled up in politics in 2001, I actually think that an interest in justice is a moral question, not a political question. Refugees are a moral question, not a political question. They just got caught up in politics. Can I ask you about politicians then? Like at the moment, um, <laughs> we had, you know, three ministers uh, have to apologise to a court um, and... Uh, and in within um, your book, you speak about that our um, our uh, you know politicians, I suppose, would potentially support the courts and and uphold their their um, role in society. And I wonder if you think that's changing. Are, are courts under attack, or judges in particular, under attack more now yeah. than they have in the past? That they are, and in fact, it is traditionally the role of the Attorney General of the jurisdiction to defend the courts because. Traditionally, judges do not respond to criticism. Um, unfortunately, in the early 2000s, um, some politicians became increasingly irritable at the fact that some judges were making decisions saying, well, you're wrong in the way you've applied this law. And the politicians got cross at that and they would abuse the court or the judge, the particular judge. And, um, and that create i mean and in fact in one instance i recall it was the attorney general of the commonwealth who criticized the federal court now that's outrageous you know the attorney general should have been defending the court not abusing it but you know one of the things about judges is that they are appointed for you know until they're age 70 or 72 depending on the jurisdiction and um a, the politicians may attack them but they hold their jobs they can only be removed on proved misbehaviour by an address of both Houses of Parliament. And although there's many judges whose judgments I don't like, many judgments that I disagree with or would have preferred to see run out differently, I have never thought that our judges are dishonest. I'm confident that our judges decide cases honestly and in accordance with their conscience and their understanding of the law. And the fact that I disagree with them is irrelevant and I would never, ever publicly criticise any individual judge because I think that's a quite wrong thing to do and politicians ought to know better. If you're just tuned in, we're speaking with Julian Burnside all about a whole range of issues, uh, but many of them are covered in his brand new book, uh, Watching Out, Reflections on Justice and Injustice. And I guess going from uh, looking at the way that uh, politicians have called out the courts and criticised the courts, we've also seen over the years um, federal members of parliament being very strident in criticism of Julian Triggs, the former head of the Human Rights Commission. We have um, a new head starting very soon. I wonder what your perspective is on that and whether we might see that either diminish or continue into the future? Um, well, I think Gillian Triggs did a superb job as head of the Human Rights Commission. I thought most of the criticisms of her um, came from people who are frankly ignorant on the real subject and um, probably have their own political agendas to pursue. I know that uh, she got into a tangle with the Senate Legal and Constitutional Committee. Well, I've appeared in front of that committee and there's two people there in particular who are dead hopeless and they're the ones who led the charge against her. Um, but they're uh, not people whose opinions ought to be respected by anyone, in my opinion. Mm. And um, 
one surprise um, in in your book was a discussion around a bill of rights, and um, that your views have quite significantly changed on a bill of rights for Australia. Mm. And I, I, yeah, I'd love you to speak to that because it's not something that can, it comes up every now and then. But I actually didn't realise how often it had actually been discussed over the years. Well, well, let you me mark su- the dates. Yeah. Well, let me let me surprise you again. Um, where you may recall that um, Kevin Rudd. Uh, got Frank Brennan to inquire into the possibility of a Bill of Rights and Frank, I think, started the task more or less against the idea of a Bill of Rights but ultimately came around and said, yes, a statutory Bill of Rights was a good idea. But during that time, the best argument in support of a Bill of Rights was given by John Howard. He was doorstopped and and the journalist asked him what he thought of a Bill of Rights. He said, I think a Bill of Rights is a very bad idea because it interferes with what the Parliament can do. And that's the point. That is exactly the point of a Bill of Rights. It is to stop Parliaments from trashing fundamental values of our community. Now, a lot of people who criticise a Bill of Rights do so by reference to the US Bill of Rights. But it, actually, it's not, not what we're talking about. It's The US Bill of Rights is called a Bill of Rights and it has two or three articles that are concerned with some fundamental rights like freedom of expression and so on. Um, but it is it is not the sort of human rights document that we're talking about. Victoria has a, a charter of human rights and freedoms and or human rights and responsibilities, and that's what a Bill of Rights is. It's not the US Bill of Rights. I would not want a US-style Bill of Rights in Australia. And, and you speak, um, I guess, about some of the, the bad laws, if we can call them that, that have been uh, allowed um, to pass Parliament because of our lack of Bill of, Bill of Rights, such as the, the um, ability for someone to be detained for life, essentially, if they have come here seeking asylum and aren't granted, granted a visa by Australia and can't be sent back to their yep. home country either, yep. which is a, a horrific thing, really. But would a Bill of Rights, if constitutionally enshrined, prevent that sort of thing from happening? Yes, it would. In fact, it's interesting, um, in England, England has has a Human Rights Act, which is another name for Bill of Rights. The Human Rights Act reflects the content of the European Charter of Human Rights and it's a condition of membership of the EU that you have domestic legislation that mirrors the European Charter. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Human Rights Act go as soon as Brexit is played out. Anyway, um, the the English Parliament passed a law a few years back which said that if a person is a refugee, therefore in brackets can't be removed from the country, and if they ha- if they are a suspected terrorist, not a convicted terrorist, but a suspected terrorist, then that person can be detained for up to a year. And it was said to be to preserve the life of the nation. And that's a magic phrase in the Human Rights Act because the Human Rights Act says you can't do this, this and this and this except to preserve the life of the nation. So to preserve the life of the nation, um, you could detain a suspected terrorist who couldn't be removed from the country. It goes up to the House of Lords to see whether this is a valid act. Eight to one, they said, no, it's not, by reference to the Human Rights Act. And Lord Hoffman finished his speech by saying that the life of the nation is less threatened by terrorism than by laws like these. It's a very powerful idea. Mm. And we need to stand back and think about that in Australia because if we have a government which is willing to mistreat any group of innocent human beings or to disadvantage any group of innocent human beings by making it practically impossible for them to seek justice through the legal system, um, then it's only a matter of time before it's our turn. And I think I finished the book with one of the quotations that I most 
admire, and that was Martin Niemöller, Lutheran pastor, Germany, 1930s, who was taken in for interrogation by the Gestapo in July 1938 and who famously said, when they came for the socialists, I said nothing because I'm not a socialist. When they came for the trade unionists, I said nothing because I'm not a trade unionist. When they came for the Jews, I said nothing because I'm not a Jew. And when they came for me, there was no one to speak for me. We all need to understand that if justice means anything, it has to mean the same thing to everyone, to even people we don't like, even people we disagree with. Justice is important for all of us. And if uh, you want to learn more about the the legal slash justice system, um, Julianne Burnside's new book is out. It's called Watching Out. And uh, one last question before we let you go: uh, We've seen technology disrupt so much of um, what we've you know you know the last twenty years or so, and lots of different industries, media and taxis and whatever. Is it going to happen, or has it already happened to the legal system? Do you think? I understand it is happening in the legal system. You know, there are, um, certainly in America, there are websites which act effectively as um, legal advisors. Um, I suspect that the content of the system will change, the way the system operates will change. But ultimately, when it comes down to a disputed question of facts, there's no real alternative but to have a hearing in which a trusted individual decides, I believe you, I don't believe you. And um, in order to pursue that, you're going to have to have people who are able to go along and ask the right questions in cross-examination that will get to the truth and make arguments that the law should apply this way rather than that way. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that no matter how much the legal system may change, there'll still be a role for barristers. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, I make a declaration of self-interest in saying that. Well, look, you can always become an author. If it... <laughs> Thank you so much for coming Thank in. You. Julian yes. Burnside, QC, and uh, recommended read uh, if you haven't got a whole lot um, growing next to your bedside table or bed at the moment. Um, this one could be a good addition. Uh, this month or next month, if you've been technical about it, this week is the Melbourne International Film Festival and there is always an incredibly diverse range of films on show and we're speaking about one of them this morning, a fascinating documentary which looks at one of the world's shipping choke points, the Istanbul Strait, which connects the Black Sea with the Mediterranean and something like 50,000 container and, container and cargo ships pass through this very narrow strait each year and major incidents are avoided only through the heroic efforts of Turkish pilots that jump on these ships and help them navigate. Samantha the Dinning is co-producer of Guardians of the Strait. It's her first feature-length film and uh, she's co-creator and producer and it's really great to have you in here and what a story. When did you come across this story of the the captains, the pilots that, that show these um, massive ships the way through? Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so I guess the story sort of originated when Claire Jago, who's the film's writer, director and co-producer, um, was in Turkey about 10 years ago on a holiday and sort of with a filmmaker's brain on, was looking out into the strait and was sort of in awe of the amount of shipping traffic passing through the, the strait and the size of the, the ships. To give you an idea that Istanbul's a city of about 20 million people um, and the strait snakes through with um, a number of bends uh, that require sort of a change in navigational course. Um, and she started thinking, how does this all work um, and operate without, you know, sort of massive catastrophe? 
Um, and she initially met with a woman called Nilifa Oral, who is uh, one of the world's leading maritime uh, lawyers who's based in Istanbul, and started a conversation about what was happening in the strait. Um, and sort of Claire came back to Australia and went on to other things and then about uh, two years ago we sort of met up, we'd worked together previously um, in another capacity and and she said, oh, I've got this idea about, about the Istanbul Strait and I had no idea, I'd never been to Turkey, was unfamiliar with the Strait um, and we sort of started doing some initial research and found out about... Uh, the pilots that work uh, to help guide the tankers through the strait um, and the quite dangerous work that, that they do. Um, and we uh, applied for some development money from Screen Australia to uh, conduct an initial research trip. So Claire and I went over to Turkey uh, in the midst of the worst snowstorm uh, in 30 <laughs> years in Istanbul uh, to conduct some initial research interviews and find some characters. Um, and I sort of just took along my 5D plan- sort of planning to shoot some preliminary research interviews and we got off the plane and the camera went on for 21 days and sort of didn't stop uh so so we realized then oh we've actually shot half a film um so yeah doors just opened from that initial trip it's interesting that that it came about that way quite organically because i was wondering when watching it that that it must be quite a daunting thing when you're a documentary filmmaker and you're you're seeking to i guess tell a story but it's it's a real story so you can't really influence events too much you're waiting for that drama to happen that really kind of hooks people into these and there definitely is that drama so it's fascinating to to hear that it was shot over that just sort of 21 day period yeah well well, we went back that year uh in november um with a bigger crew so the first shoot was just claire and myself um and then later we had a, a, a crew of five all female crew um, and we spent another four weeks um, shooting then. But you're right, it's an unpredictable waterway, um, <laughs> uh, and we were lucky that whilst we were there, I uh, won't give too much away about the film, but there was something that happened that was pure coincidence that did provide that drama and really gave a sense of the stakes of um, the, the danger and the stakes of... of sort of this congested yeah it's, i mean it's an extraordinary like i think it's at its narrowest it's 640 meters or something like yeah, that yeah. so you're thinking you know tens of thousands of of big boats going through that strait every year and needing to be coordinated on their passage yes. and then all of the local boats as well like tiny little fishing dinghy type things to ferries and all sorts of uh, of istanbul's own traffic going across the street as well but i mean i suppose if we can just talk about the pilot and what they pilots and what they actually do because we have them here at the melbourne port i think yes, they, they, they jump yep. on the tankers and they guide them in because they know the water better than that that yep. waterway better than anyone else talk about that role of a pilot yeah sure um so there's two pilot stations on the strait there's one near the entrance to the black sea and then there's one at the entrance uh to the marmara sea um so to become a, a marine pilot in in the strait you you're at the peak of your sort of career they're all uh highly experienced captains um so basically there's quite a complex this uh, vessel traffic control system that works uh where uh, tanker captains will sort of call in their arrival, say if they're arriving into the Black Sea, um, which will 
initiate uh, a pilot boat to go out to the ship while it's moving uh, and a pilot will uh, climb a rope ladder most of the time. Sometimes they have sort of staircases that come down, but a lot of the time they're free climbing a nine-metre rope ladder and both the pilot boat and the tanker are moving at the same time. Um, so the pilot uh, climbs up the ship and then uh, helps the, the, the captain uh, navigate the strait. Uh, for t- the, the passage takes two hours in total uh, and then the same process happens at the end where the pilot boat will come out uh, to the Marmara Sea and the pilot will climb back down um, and uh, yeah, they're quite they're quite amazing action heroes. <laughs> I think you're quite Every impressed day they do heroes. But I mean, it's an exhausting task because it is. There's so many stakes. Yes, uh, they have to take so much into account. And they're essentially in charge, aren't they, of the of the ship when they're going through the strait? Are they? They are. They're not. They they provide guidance. They don't sort of manually take the helm, but they're there as the local. Um, uh, guide and point of contact so they communicate with the traffic um, services as well. But their sort of local knowledge is is incredibly valuable. Um, and the, the, the one of the issues uh, that surrounds this particular waterway is that pilotage isn't mandatory. Uh, it's it's only mandatory for Turkish um, flag vessels. So I think about half the ships that pass for you through annually don't take a pilot because it can cost up to $5,000 for the two-hour passage. So that presents um, an incredible sort of risk. And I think there's the majority of the Russian ships that pass through don't don't take a pilot either. Mm, And give us a sense of those risks because um, there has been, I think it was in the 1990s, there was a massive collision between tankers. A lot of them are carrying dangerous cargo that is very flammable um is there still a great risk that that sort of catastrophe could could happen again in that strait absolutely yep absolutely um the number of ships is is growing uh the the waterway is uh there's a number of marinas that have been planned to be built along uh, the shipping lane as well. Uh, we look at one in the Bebek area in our film, uh, where there's at the narrowest point of the strait, a uh, 500 boat marina is planning to be built, which is going to narrow it further. Um, so on top of that, you know, it's, it's a choke point, um, geopolitically. So, um, the risks there are, are only sort of going to get greater. Mm. Is it something that that residents are, are aware of that that there is this this great risk of collisions? Yes, and it it certainly is. And in the film as well, we explore um, an incident where a woman had a tanker uh, collide into her house, which basically it was on the it's side mind of boggling the, yeah, when you yeah, think about is. it how big these ships are. I mean, some of them are what two hundred and fifty meters long. Yep, and they're. I mean, one of them, I think that the description was that it goes about, you know, five stories down into the water as well. So you've got massive momentum and your house is right yeah. there. Imagine. I know. And it takes them about three kilometres to come to a, to a complete stop. So, yeah, the, the woman whose um, 
house was uh, collided with, was, yeah, her, her story is quite incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if you just tuned in, we're speaking with uh, Samantha Dinning, the co-creator and producer of a documentary screening at MIF. It's called Guardians of the Strait. And uh, this has had a couple of screenings before MIF, one of which was at a film festival in Turkey. I understand you didn't head over for that, but do you know how it was received over there? Yeah, so uh, Claire went over, supported by the Australian Embassy, over to to Turkey for the premiere of the film and it had a, an amazing reception. Um, she also did a presentation with the Goethe Institute um, to a, uh, a room full of um, interested documentary filmmakers as well. Um, but yeah, it, it received a, a great um, reception and TRT World, the Turkish public broadcaster there, did a little sort of special segment on it as well, which was which was great. Yeah, and I mean, you also allude in the film to not just congestion in the street, but congestion in Istanbul generally and and bridge crossing points and the like. And is it looking like those, um, I suppose, the conflicts between nature um, and and people's needs to use that area are going to increase? Is that your sense? Yeah, so when we were there early in 2015, the third bridge, so there's there is now three bridges but when we were there there was two bridges that crossed the state straight sorry um connecting europe and asia um while we were there the third bridge was under construction um and basically it it's built in an area that contains istanbul's last sort of remaining forests um which is something we touch on in the film as well um so that area is being planned for development and they're going to build a huge another huge airport uh in that that area as well so yeah the environmental um concerns of the the uh, edges of the waterway are are an issue as well yeah, it's an amazing story and um, congratulations and it's really um, fascinating to hear when uh, you know, you're know you based here but telling a story that is so personal to the people in Istanbul. It's um, yeah, well done. And um, so you can see this film. It's called Guardians of the Strait uh, as part of MIF. Uh, we've been speaking with co-creator and producer Samantha Dinning and I actually don't have the date in front of me but you do, Dylan, do. don't you? I do, prepared. <laughs> <laughs> Seamless. Uh, it's screening on August the 5th to Saturday at 1.30pm at Keen cinemas and also August the 10th 6.45pm at Acme and I understand uh, Samantha you're going to be at both those screenings for a Q&A with yes, Claire, Claire, and I, Claire and I will be there for both screenings to do a Q&A Fantastic, so head to the website, uh, the MIF website for more details on that and to get yourself a ticket if you want to head along. Thanks very much Thanks for having Thanks. me. See ya. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne Truly independent community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au